Hey everyone, welcome to the, I'm going to rename it, the Bitcoin Fortress Podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 18, recorded on May 21st, 2022. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice, so please do your own homework. As I uh, mentioned, I decided to rename the podcast to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, since I mostly talk about Bitcoin anyway, although I'll I'll continue to talk about other subjects. And then this ties in better with my uh, Substack and my YouTube channel and also um, uh, my Twitter. So there you have it, rebranding. Uh, so this week I got quite a lot to go over. Um, we'll go through a quick market update, talk about some Bitcoin news. Uh, there's four articles in particular I want to go through. And then I thought I'd wrap it up with uh, a little uh, residential real estate market overview. Talk about what's happening in with mortgage rates, uh, prices, monthly payments, sales volume. And ultimately, whether it's a good time to buy, sell, or hold. So uh, that's what we'll have coming up. Moving into the market update, stocks dipped into bear market territory on Friday with the S&P 500's decline from its January all-time high, hitting 20% at one point, before a late session reversal lifted the benchmark index to a flat finish. And I might add, destroying many option purchasers in the process, as uh, I was talking with my son about. Much of the decline in investor confidence recently stems from lackluster retail earnings, which has raised fears that a consumer-led downturn is approaching. On top of the inflation and supply chain challenges that have weighed on sentiment for weeks, But some potential silver linings can be found if one squints hard enough, including a decline in U.S. bond yields, a leveling off of the U.S. dollar and commodity prices, and partial reopening from COVID lockdowns in China. For the week, the Dow Jones average lost 2.9% for its first eight-week losing streak since 1923, while the S&P lost 3% for the week and the Nasdaq slumped 3.8% with both posting seven-week losing streaks. So things are pretty dire in the stock market world these days. If you're a contrarian, you might say maybe it's time to buy. But, uh, of course, stocks could keep dropping. But uh, several folks that I follow that are contrarian investors uh, are saying it's overdone. Uh, Although a lot of them are calling for a melt-up followed by an 80% crash. So um, that wouldn't be very good. But, you know, you could make a short-term profit, I suppose, in that uh, situation. Moving on to Bitcoin news, first article here. Uh, This is uh, uh, from fortune.com, Fortune Magazine, May 16th. El Salvador's crypto-loving president is hosting the Davos for Bitcoin with more than 40 countries represented. El Salvador's president is hosting representatives of central banks and financial authorities from at least 40 countries on Monday at a conference that may best be described as the Davos for Bitcoin. 
President Najib Bukele, a longtime Bitcoin supporter, took a step toward Bitcoin evangelist Monday as he reportedly assembled a group of financial leaders, mostly from developing countries, to, quote, discuss financial inclusion, digital economy, banking, the unbanked, the Bitcoin rollout and its benefits in our country, Bukele said in a tweet on Sunday night. Although it wasn't immediately clear how much of the meeting would revolve around the cryptocurrency, it is significant for such a big group of countries to gather to discuss Bitcoin. Central bank representatives and bankers were set to, to attend the conference from Egypt, Ecuador, and Nigeria, among other nations. Only two countries, including El Salvador, have adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. The Central American country was the first to do so last September and was followed earlier this year by the Central African Republic. El Salvador's Central American neighbor, Panama, may also follow suit soon. El Salvador has steadily added Bitcoin to its coffers since making it legal tender. Last week, amid a crypto crash that saw Bitcoin fall to lows not seen since December 2020, Bukele said in a tweet that his country had bought 500 Bitcoins at an average price of about $30,744, its largest purchase since September. Since El Salvador adopted the cryptocurrency as legal tender, it is labeled the experiment a success. In February, the country's Minister of Tourism, Morena Valdez, said the tourism, that tourism jumped 30% since the country passed the Bitcoin law. Bukele also kicked off the year by boasting of a double-digit increase in the country's GDP for 2021. It's unclear when or whether any of the gains are tied to the country's embrace of Bitcoin. Furthermore, Bukele and El Salvador's bet on Bitcoin may have already yielded some $40 million in losses, according to Bloomberg estimate. So here comes the FUD. Apart from losses from the current crypto crash, some of the country's citizens have complained that they don't trust Bitcoin and that they don't want to receive remittances from family members abroad in the cryptocurrency because of the high transaction fees. Well, that's a head scratcher. Because of these obstacles, adoption for Bitcoin in El Salvador could be waning. Although all vendors in El Salvador are legally required to accept it, a survey by the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research said only 20% of adults in El Salvador are using the state-sponsored crypto wallet app, Chivo. Initially, downloads for the app were high as the government doled out $30 in Bitcoin to citizens who downloaded it. So, uh, of course, there's always some negative in the mainstream, but uh, the overall message here is pretty positive that there's a lot of countries that are interested in uh, looking at uh, what El Salvador has done to see how it might work for their country. And uh, again, um, I think very bullish for Bitcoin adoption. Uh, next article here is from Bitcoin Magazine. This is on May 16th. Luna Foundation sold 80,000 Bitcoin amid UST crash. The nonprofit organization said only 313 Bitcoin are left now on the reserves for Terra's UST stablecoin. So I did talk about this last week, the, the Luna, um, uh, the Terra Luna meltdown, I guess. Um, so this is really just a follow-up on uh, what happened to the Bitcoin that was backing Luna. So Luna Foundation Guard, LFG, the non 
profit organization holding Terra's Bitcoin reserves confirmed on Monday morning that it sold over 80,000 Bitcoin over the past week to acquire Terra in a, an attempt to defend its crumbling U.S. dollar peg. Consistent with its nonprofit mission and focus on the health of the Terra ecosystem beginning on May 8th when the price of UST began to drop substantially below $1, the foundation began converting this reserve to UST, LFG said in a Twitter thread. Singapore-based LFG works to cultivate demand for Terra stablecoins and buttress the stability of the UST peg and foster the growth of the Terra ecosystem. It was in charge of acquiring and holding Bitcoin to build the UST reserves. The foundation said it began transferring Bitcoin funds to a counterparty to enable them to enter trades with the foundation in large size and on short notice. That counterparty received north of 50,000 BTC in exchange for over 1.5 billion UST. As the UST value kept dropping, failing to shoot back toward its supposed $1 peg, Terraform Labs, the tech startup behind the development of Terra, sold 33,206 Bitcoin for 1.16 billion UST on May 10th in a last-ditch effort to defend the peg, LFG said. As of May 16th, LFG holds 313 Bitcoin in reserves out of 80,394 Bitcoin it held on May 7th. The foundation also holds a handful of other assets, including UST and Luna, the majority of its Luna is staked, locked up across a range of validators to protect against a possible governance attack as the token's price kept dropping near zero and the amount of Luna in circulation skyrocketed. The foundation is looking to use its remaining assets to compensate remaining users of UST, smallest holders first, LFG said in a final tweet. We are still debating through various distribution methods, updates to follow soon. So a very sad story, and again, like I talked about last week, this is pretty much like a country uh, that has a collapsing currency that then um, sells its gold reserves uh, to try to prop up its currency, and ultimately the currency fails, and the gold is gone, and the currency is at zero. So uh, a, a cautionary warning about cryptocurrencies, they are not the same as Bitcoin. Bitcoin is uh, actually um, a real financial asset and uh, a truly decentralized money. And uh, most of the cryptocurrency projects are, you know, for lack of a better word, scams. And you need to be very, very careful since they're basically just trying to recreate uh, fiat systems um, on the blockchain. So they're very prone to being centralized um, scams. Okay, the next article here, this is a press release from Texas Pacific Land Corporation. So it says here, Texas Pacific Land Corporation, Mawson Infrastructure Group, and JAI Energy announced new Bitcoin mining venture in West Texas. Texas Pacific Land Corporation, Mawson Infrastructure Group, and Jai Energy have entered into a strategic alliance to develop up to 60 megawatts of Bitcoin mining on TPL's surface in West Texas. Based on utilization of current generation Bitcoin mining hardware, these new facilities, which will be owned and operated by Mawson, could accommodate up to two exahash of Bitcoin mining operational capacity. TPL and JAI will earn a net royalty interest and retain an option to acquire an equity stake. 
Mawson intends to participate in demand response programs as part of its power procurement strategy and is evaluating behind the meter renewable solutions. Mawson and Jai have four locations planned in Texas with two located on TPL surface. Construction is expected to commence in the second quarter of 2022 and operations targeted to begin in the fourth quarter of 2022. This project marks the beginning of TPL's journey into Bitcoin and we are fortunate to collaborate with Mawson and JAI as two highly regarded companies in the Bitcoin mining industry, said Tyler Glover, CEO of TPL. We believe TPL's extensive surface footprint in West Texas can serve as a premier destination for the Bitcoin mining industry, providing site locations proximate to existing grid infrastructure and excellent solar and wind resource for future renewable power procurement. We are aligned to see this venture succeed and scale as we look to leverage our unique asset base, industry and customer relationships and the region's energy abundance. For TPL, our shareholders will benefit from a unique royalty stream while retaining an option to participate as an equity partner. Texas is rapidly emerging as an attractive new Bitcoin mining destination in the United States, and we are eager to establish a foothold in the state, said James Manning, CEO and founder of Mawson. Community engagement and sustainability are important priorities for Mawson, and we look forward to being a responsible corporate citizen in the communities in which we operate. We're excited to have partnered with JAI and TPL, and we believe our combined efforts and competencies will provide substantial opportunities for future development. We're thrilled to join with TPL and Mawson to bring Bitcoin mining to Texas, said Justin Ballard, founding partner of JAI Energy. As a former longtime professional in the oil and gas industry, I believe that Bitcoin can serve as a great complement to the oil patch and together achieve success. Additionally, it is extremely valuable to the entire Bitcoin mining space to see a group like TPL getting involved in the industry. JAI Energy strives to educate energy companies and landowners on the benefits that Bitcoin mining can bring, and we applaud TPL for being a leader and jumping at the opportunity to enter this emerging industry. So this is uh, pretty significant news because this is a major landowner that owns a lot of oil and gas properties uh, with with uh, wells that could be converted, uh, you know, from flaring gas to uh, capturing the gas to use for power generation. And they also have um, other lands where um, renewable uh, uh, power can be uh, constructed. Um, and essentially funded by the Bitcoin mining that occurs, uh, you know, out there with that power. So that would include wind and solar and things like that. So uh, pretty unique to have a big landowner. And of course, they're joint venturing with, um, you know, a couple different companies to, to make this happen. But uh, Texas is obviously way ahead of a lot of other states in the United States in terms of uh you know, progressing uh, the Bitcoin mining industry. And this is just another example. And then the last article here is why we can't trust hash rate data from China. The changing proportion of Bitcoin network hash rate emanating from China can be explained by the inherent flaws in how this data is collected. This is from Bitcoin Magazine on May 19th. China has, quote, re-emerged as a major Bitcoin mining hub in 2022, representing more than 20% of the Bitcoin network's hash rate, according to the new data from Cambridge 
Cambridge's Center for Alternative Finance. The October 2021 data update from CCAF indicated that mining operations in mainland China have effectively dropped to zero. So what caused this purported enormous whiplash in mining activity from a CCAF reported high of 75% in September 2019 to 0% and now back to 20%? Since July 2021, Bitcoin's hash rate has grown at a steady pace, pairing its losses from China's original ban and continuing to set record highs in recent months. But what happened in China? And is the new CCAF data an accurate representation of the state of Bitcoin mining? This article aims to provide additional context to the CCAF data and explain why the data, although an important effort to try to quantify trends in the mining industry, is not reliable. And uh, they go on to say that there was never 0% hash rate in China. Analysis of China's massive resurgence in mining activity is premised on its prior state of having absolutely no mining activity whatsoever, which is entirely false. When CCAF first released its data last year showing no mining activity in China, the project's lead was careful to qualify it as the region's reported share of hash rate, which could theoretically differ from its actual share. Other researchers, mining industry leaders, and this author knew that 0% number to be inaccurate and said so publicly. CCAF researchers dismissed these claims from actual miners as difficult to verify, preferring to lean on their own methodology. But CNBC reporter Mackenzie Sigalos took these claims seriously, and she later reported on the active underground mining scene in China. Ironically, the reporting by Sigalos was cited by CCAF researchers in their latest blog post with updated China mining analysis. With a precipitous drop in total hash rate, a coinciding drop in Bitcoin's price and constant media attention paid to the future of mining after China's ban, data that claimed 0% of hash rate was coming from China fit the narrative. But the data wasn't accurate, and miners knew it. So why was the 0% number ever published? Mining data is hard to collect, and Cambridge Bitcoin mining data is flawed. Data is only as reliable as the methodology used to collect it, and for CCAF mining data, the assumptions in the methodology clearly demonstrate inherent problems with the data collection. These structural difficulties, in fact, compromise the reliability of the data as it's presented. One key failure is the methodological assumption that the mining facility's IP addresses are an accurate indication of the hash rate's geographic location. Consider an unlikely but feasible scenario where a miner based in Mexico uses a proxy with an IP address in Germany in January, switches to Australia as a proxy later in April, and then uses an IP address based in Romania in July. CCAF's broken methodology would assume that this miner physically moved to all three locations all three of these locations throughout the year, a logistical nightmare and economic impossibility for any miner. Some industry commentators defend CCAF's research by asserting that slightly inaccurate data is better than no data at all. This idea is so laughably illogical it barely deserves mentioning, and CCAF so heavily caveats and qualifies its own data that its reliability is minimal at best. For example, in multiple places in its data dashboard, the CCAF qualifies its data for Germany and Ireland by indicating, to our knowledge, there's little evidence of large mining operations in Germany or Ireland that would justify these figures. Their share is likely significantly inflated due to redirected IP addresses via, via the use of VPN or proxy services.
Put differently, the data is not reliable. To be clear, the problems with CCF's methodology are not its own doing. Mining data is outstandingly difficult to accurately collect. Similar mining data sets built by the newly launched Bitcoin Mining Council also received some public criticism for the accuracy of their methodology. If anything, the continued work by CCF to report mining data serves to expose many of the unavoidable issues with collecting accurate and representative data from Bitcoin mining. Uh, also, mining pools can lie. CCAF also relies on self-reporting by miners to aid its research on the geographic distribution of hash rate. The obvious problem with this exchange of information is that miners can lie. This point was made publicly on Twitter by Ethan Vera, co-founder of Luxor Mining, when he tweeted, The mining pools submitting data to Cambridge lied. They showed zero hash rate in China when there clearly wasn't the case. The political motivation for miners to lie is obvious. What miner would willingly report full or even partial mining activity in the world's most aggressively anti-mining region? Any incentive to self-report mining in China is simply non-existent. And as mentioned previously, the 0% hash rate statistic perfectly fits the ongoing narrative of a full mining exodus from China. Data submitted to CCAF is given voluntarily, moreover, and there are very few cross-checks available to Cambridge's research team, leaving them to have to simply trust the answers given to it, which is an unreliable research method. And then he kind of wraps it up and says that, uh, you know, China is unlikely to ever regain its former share of the global Bitcoin hash rate market. Industry leaders and academics alike can agree on this. Chinese officials are still confiscating mining hardware by the hundreds and thousands of rigs, and many large-scale miners have permanently relocated to other parts of the world. But the Chinese underground mining industry will never be extinguished. So, uh, interesting because uh, the... I think, as it mentioned earlier uh, in the uh, article here, Cambridge uh, um, data analysis and their reporting on Bitcoin mining is widely cited in mainstream media. So to the extent that the data is wrong, uh, they could be sending the wrong signal to uh, the general public. And that would include not only where the mining is occurring and which countries, uh, but also uh, how much of it is renewable, which is a big topic of discussion. And um, I'm beginning to think that it kind of doesn't matter whether it's renewable or energy or not. It's either a good use of energy or it's a bad use of energy. And, and regardless, it's a very small use of energy relative to, you know, the entire globe. And... Um, I would I would argue it's a good use of energy to secure your money, regardless. Okay, so that wraps up the Bitcoin news segment. Now we'll get into the uh, residential real estate market review. And I'm going to apologize. I have some charts um, that will be included in my... Um, Substack post this week. So if you want to uh, go to the Substack and you can, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, you can take a look at the uh, the charts, um, but I'll do my best to describe what's happening in them um, as I walk through this. Um, so basically for this week, uh, I wanted to 
focus on the U.S. residential real estate market nationally just to see whether it's time to buy, sell, or hold. Of course, uh, all real estate is local, and some markets that have been more in demand will fare better and others will fare worse than the average. But I think looking at the national data um, is instructive. So first things first, as a backdrop, the increase in, in money supply since 2020 has flooded the world with dollars, and those dollars have found their way into all sorts of assets, including stocks, bonds, cryptocurrencies, private companies, and real estate. And uh, basically the uh, M3 money supply growth has gone parabolic since um, since 2020. Um, and so there's a chart in here from Shadow Stats that uh, they've actually continued, they, the Fed actually stopped reporting M3. And so they calculate it and, uh, and, and show it and have extended it out to the current date. Uh, but it's it's basically a hockey stick. And then meanwhile, inflation expectations uh, have driven up the cost of a 30-year fixed rate mortgage uh, from an all-time low of 2.65% in January 2021 to 5.25% as of May 2022, which is almost double. As a result of the post-pandemic demand fueled by low rates, excess cash, work-from-home dynamics, urban flight, uh, and then some other demographics like millennials looking to buy their first home, uh, all of those have contributed to increased demand for uh, houses. And so home prices have skyrocketed um, 57% above the peak um, before the great financial crisis back in uh, you know, I think the peak was in something like 2007, and GFC was in 2008. Uh, but 57% above the peak, um, as measured by the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index. So if that doesn't feel like a bubble, then I'm not sure what does. Um, you know, in comparison, the S&P 500 is also at very lofty levels. And even though, you know, there's been a, you know, recent sell-off, um, you know, the upward trend and, and you know, the, over, the overall trend is still, you know, very much, very much intact. And uh, it's got a lot a long way to go down if it's going down, if it's going to continue to go down. Uh, meanwhile, um, existing home sales are significantly below year ago levels. And uh, if you look at that, I think it's currently at about a, 5 million rate in a year ago is around close to 6 million homes that were being sold. So, um, so definitely lower. So this would indicate that, you know, there's going to continue to be some, some, uh, uh, some supply constraints. Um, because we do have, you know, although we have some, we also have inventory levels that have been rising, but they're lower than they were a year ago. So it's a little bit above a million. A year ago is just under probably a million one, million, between a million one and a million two uh, homes available for sale. So, so you've got, uh, again, existing home sales significantly below year ago levels. 
um, with rising inventory, but lower than a year ago. So, you know, at least in the short term, again, there should be some supply constraints and assuming the demand stays relatively strong, uh, that should support prices. Now, a major demand headwind is going to be monthly mortgage payments. And uh, there was an article in Bloomberg, and I'll, I'll include the link uh, for that in the, um, I'll put that in the show notes too. Uh, but uh, that the uh, mortgage payments are 36% higher than a year ago, uh, which is pretty significant. And again, that's due to rising prices, and higher interest rates. So if monthly mortgage payments continue to rise along, you know, along with prices and, you know, of homes and interest rates, um, as they've been doing, um, that could begin to significantly impact demand, which would then start to impact prices. And then one other factor to consider, which is pretty important is that institutional ownership of single family real estate, um, has increased dramatically in recent years. And if these institutions become net sellers of real estate, that could result in a big increase in the supply of available homes and potentially drive prices down. So institutional share of purchases uh, last reported here in Q3 2021 uh, from a Redfin analysis uh, was at 18.2%. Um, which uh, is, is up quite a bit from Q2 of 2021, which is 16.1%. And uh, uh, it kind of hit a low of 11.2% in Q3 of 2020. But overall, uh, if you look at the, the chart, it's a long-term upward trend. And uh, it's definitely um, looks like it is... Uh, you know, hope may have peaked. I don't know. We'll see uh, at 18.2%, but that's a pretty big number. Um, so the real question then is, you know, will the smart money dump on retail like they've been doing in the stock market recently? And only time will tell, but it might not take much of a further increase in treasury bond rates to cause investors uh the same investors that own these these uh, uh, homes to prefer owning ten-year treasuries, let's say at a three to four percent yield with no risk of principal loss, of course, other than inflation. But you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be buying bonds in this environment. But but uh, they would certainly look at that as uh, hey, at least the principal is guaranteed, and I'm gonna get three to four percent. Versus owning a piece of real estate that's yielding four or five percent with risk of principal loss, um, you know, obviously due to inflated market pricing. And um, someone I listen to pretty regularly, George Gammon, uh, he has a YouTube channel. He recently explored this idea in one of his podcasts. I think he's right on point. This is something that we really need to watch. One other factor to consider here too is that adjustable rate mortgages are now 11% of total loans and 19% by dollar volume, which is the highest demand since March, 2008, uh, which was reported on CNBC recently. So for those of you who lived through the great financial crisis like I did, that is not good news at all. 
Um, if interest rates continue to rise due to inflation, those borrowers could be facing some nasty surprises when their loans adjust in a few years. On the other hand, if we have a recession, uh, which would tend to drive rates down, that really won't help because if you know the job losses are going to make it difficult to support mortgage payments, people are going to then get foreclosed on, the foreclosures will add more to inventory, and then the market will just kind of do a downward price spiral which, you know, that would be a flashback to the 2008 great financial crisis. Uh, so a lot of that will depend on how <clears throat> skillful the, the Fed is in, in uh, engineering a soft-ish landing, as they say, uh, with uh, trying to control inflation without beating the economy down. Most people are, uh, that I follow are very skeptical of any kind of a soft landing and that we're going to end up in a recession. And there's certainly plenty of indicators that we're headed that way in the next 12 to 18 months. So my overall view is that if you are living in a home and you have an affordable low rate mortgage payment, especially if you're refinanced in the last few years at low rates, just stay put unless you have a good reason for moving, like relocating for a new job or retirement or family reasons, etc. Um, I've known people in the past who've tried to take advantage of market peaks by selling their home and renting to, quote, wait for the market to crash and then buy back. And I just don't think that's a good move since, first of all, the market may not crash as low or at all. Um, you know, uh, it could keep going up for that matter. Um, and then meanwhile, you're subjecting yourself to rising housing payments as a renter, which could be substantial, you know, especially, you know, as, as more people are priced out of buying a home that, and they're going to have no choice to rent, that's going to, that's going to drive, you know, rent, uh, rents up. So in a high inflation environment, you know, I think a long-term rate fixed mortgage is really an asset, you know, it's, it's kind of almost a flip-flop, you know, the, the liability is the property itself because you have to maintain it. <laughs> the asset is really the mortgage because it's, you know, you're paying back the loan in dollars that are losing value over time. So the higher the rate of inflation, uh, the, 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 the better off you are, um, honestly, having, having a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. If you do own an investment property, maybe it's time to take a look at whether it makes sense to sell. You know, and you could do a 1031 exchange to diversify your holdings into different uh, properties or asset classes. Um, you know, I've talked about uh, 1031 exchanges uh, in prior uh, podcasts. Um, or you can take the cash and buy something else that isn't in a bubble. You know, maybe another hard asset like gold or silver or even Bitcoin, all of which uh, are well off their recent highs. And... But for me as an investor, I don't think I'd be a buyer of residential real estate in the current market environment. And I'm not alone in that. There are a lot of other people, Robert Kiyosaki, I listen to his podcast. He talks about that um, a lot, uh, that he doesn't really think it's a great time to be buying uh, residential property. Um, and I, I think George Gammon is kind of in the same mindset as well. <clears throat> now, there may be good real estate deals elsewhere, maybe in you know, other parts of the world, but um, I know Canada has got very, very similar real estate market uh, to the United States with uh, home prices that have just 
gone crazy. Um, so it seems like the, the bubble is, uh, in a lot of, in a lot of places. So that's pretty much it. Uh, thank you for once again, for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Nick, N-I-C-K, Reichert, R-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.